Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Alpha Chatterbox, the long-form economics and business podcast of the Financial Times. I'm Cardiff Garcia, and our guest today is Tim Harford, an economist and an FT columnist. Tim has a new book out called Messy, The Power of Disorder to Change Our Lives. Tim, thanks for coming on the show. It's a great pleasure. Thank you, Cardiff. I want to start this chat in horribly obnoxious and pretentious fashion. I want to paraphrase. <laughs> I want to paraphrase uh, a famous quote from uh, Gustave Flaubert, the uh, French novelist from the 19th century. He said you, something. You realize at this point you could just say anything, and, no... I, and I would pretend <laughs> that I knew what the Flaubert quote, quote was. Okay, go um, for it. Because so, I thought of this quote before I'd started reading your book. The quote is something to the effect that we should be orderly in our private lives so that we can be violent and original in our work, in our minds. So my first question is, when did you start questioning the wisdom of this idea that orderliness and tidiness are always and everywhere necessarily good things? Was it something that happened to you or was it something you just came across in your work? There was no sudden moment. I was actually thinking of writing a book which is actually quite close to the book that Gillian Tett, our colleague, has ended up writing about silos. Mm. I wanted to write a book about why is it so hard for people from different disciplines or with people, people with different viewpoints, why is it so hard for them to work together in a constructive way? And slowly but surely that, in a suitably messy way, just morphed into this whole idea that um, Chaos is underrated, that ambiguity is underrated, that improvisation is underrated, and all of these other things, you know, quantifying things, having clear organizational charts, having scripts, all of those things have their disadvantages, which we, which we, tend, to, uh, we tend to gloss over. People do seem to have an instinctive preference for neatness, for beautiful, smooth, clean lines in things they design and things like that. You are sitting in front of a Mac as we speak. So exactly. It's, 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 is that a Mac Air? Or uh, it is a MacBook Air. It's beautiful. Uh, designed by Steve Jobs. It's gorgeous. Um, and that's one of its appeals. But one of the themes in your book is that because of this preference, people sometimes miss the very real benefits of messiness, right? Because those benefits tend to be hidden, whereas our instinctive preference for neatness is something that's very obvious, superficial in many cases, but obvious. It's there in front of us. Perhaps the most obvious example of that, which I think you and I share a, 
and interesting is the way that certain companies have clear desk policies or, or really seem to value the particular way that the office looks and the way everybody dresses and the way and, and it's all about superficial appearances and they don't ask the question what is the cost of bossing people around and telling them what they should wear and what should be on their desk and how everything should be organized because they people don't see the resentment and the discomfort they just see that the office looks really nice and neat and so i think there's a just a there's a classic mistake that bosses tend to make there's a wonderful study i, I describe in the book where two uh, psychologists got people to work in various office environments one of which was super neat people didn't like working in that another of which was um just it had plants it had uh, you know pot plants nice artwork on the walls just more enriched chilled out environment people preferred that but that wasn't the real discovery they had a third um experimental condition where they asked people to just put the pot plant wherever they liked put the pictures wherever they liked organize your own office and people absolutely loved that some of them made it look really neat some people didn't some people kept the pot plants some people got rid of the pot plants but that's what they really liked and there was a fourth condition which is where the psychologists got people to organize the office exactly the way they wanted it and then the psychologists came in and said oh actually this won't do for the experimental condition rearranged everything um left the office still looking nice but completely disempowering the worker and that was the office that got the worst performance people didn't get stuff done they felt physically uncomfortable they hated the experimenter they hated the company where the office was it was completely counterproductive and then you you actually realize well hang on this is basically the way all companies work they tell people what to do and what they're allowed on their desk and what goes on the wall and we hate it we really hate it and you describe one scenario where uh, i think your exact words were that the humiliation was palpable when a boss went and told his employee exactly how to organize the desk and had him open the drawers to see if actually inside the drawers everything was as neat as it was outside. I mean, that there's there's a real problem with that. People hate it. It's a parent-child relationship. Yeah. Suddenly you're being frisked to see, you know, you, you know, you've got cigarettes or dirty magazines under your bed or something. It, it's just, it's crazy. But this was, this was the, the leakage of... Um, of kind of uh, lean management principles from the production line where you you might well need something to be very, very slick and well-organized and well-ordered and there to be a, a very clear process into a more creative office-based environment where there's absolutely no point in everything being straightened and sorted. It doesn't help anybody. Right. There's this great passage in the book about the dangers of over-quantifying things that you can measure just because you can measure them. I'm going to drop one more name, and then I promise I'm done with that, okay? Uh, and then we'll get into the specifics of the book. But it made me think of this article written by uh, Umberto Eco, the Italian novelist and lover of enigmas, who wrote that the reason we all like lists, right, the reason we like listing things is because it gives us the illusion that we can control this vast infinity of stuff that's out there in the world. And by stuff, I don't mean just like material objects. I mean that there are way more ideas that I'll never know. There are many people that I'll never befriend, places I'll never go to, experiences I'll never have. It's just too much. And putting things down in a list makes us feel like we can actually understand something of the world, even though we probably can't. 
I don't even have a question at the end of that. It's just it just remi- it sparked that uh, the memory of that article. Well, if if we're going to um, talk about uh, vaguely Latinate uh, philosophers and novelists, I, I should throw back uh, Borges in the book. There's this wonderful. Um, piece by Borges where he, he writes about this completely fictional Chinese encyclopedia which categorizes um, everything, every animal in the, uh, in the emperor's kingdom. And it says, well, there are, uh, there are animals that um, are, are suckling pigs. There are animals that from a long way away look like flies. There are animals that have just, just knocked over the flower vase. Um, there are animals that belong to the emperor. There are animals that are innumerable. And, and he starts listing all of these categories. And you go, well, hang on, these categories don't make any sense. This is just crazy. How can you categorize the animal kingdom like this? But, of course, Borges is always, always has a serious point behind his jokes. And, and actually... All of those categorizations make perfect sense in a certain context. Like sometimes you want to be able to categorize things as to, according to whether someone is guilty or innocent. Sometimes you want to categorize things according to whether something is owned by somebody or not, or whether you can eat them or not. Or Actually, all of these categories make sense, but Borges has made them seem ridiculous by throwing them all in. Um, but now think about how you're going to organize your email or file, or, or file documents. Actually, sometimes you need to organize things depending on whether it comes from your boss, sometimes because it's a particular project, sometimes because it's, there's, there's a date involved, sometimes it's a customer complaint, sometimes, I mean, and, and you realize actually there is no system of filing that will actually do justice to everything you need to do. And, and in fact, there are much messier approaches to filing that, that are perhaps much, a lot more effective. So I, I, I look at this um, various studies of, of how people behave in the office, but um, one observation that if you, if you just um, dump a pile of paper on your desk and every time you sort through a pile of paper, you put it back on the top of the pile, it seems like that's an unsorted pile of paper, right? That's just a pile of paper. That's just junk. But it's not junk. It's actually very carefully sorted according to recency. The more recently you've seen something, the closer it is to the top of the pile of paper. And actually, that turns out to be a very effective algorithm for sorting paper. And when studies have been done of of people who sort their paper like this versus people who file in a very careful way, it turns out that people who file in in a careful way file far too much stuff because they file prematurely. They want to get it off their desk. And it turns out you're filing a whole bunch of stuff you'll never, ever need again. Whereas if you keep it in a big pile of paper on your desk and it slowly sifts its way through, eventually you just throw away the bottom half. And actually people have a much leaner and more effective office organisation, but it it is superficially very messy. It looks messy. It's actually better organised. If I were looking at your pile, I might think, God, Tim is just a complete wreck these days. Look at his desk. But actually there's, there's an underlying sense to it. Not only is there an underlying sense to it, but that underlying sense is customised to me. And if you come in, the worst thing you could possibly do is try to tidy up my pile because yeah. it's perfect for me. But of course, if you had to work with it, it would be completely disorienting because you don't know what the last thing was that I touched. Um, so, so yeah, it's partly this is just about live and let live. Yeah, Th- this actually uh, seems to be a current that runs through all of your books that aren't purely about economics, right? The theme of the logic of life was that actually people are more rational than we recognize, right? Adapt about progress through failure. And now this, uh, you seem uh, you seem attracted to counterintuitive explanations of things that have more sense to them than most people understand. 
Yes. Well, you're you're always looking for a, a surprise as a, as a writer and as a thinker. You know what what is it that's not obvious? What is it that is that is under the surface of things? And and of course, I'm always interested in a good story as well. We love stories, so I, I'm the, the book is full of yes stories of people who, uh, in one messy way or another, uh, triumphed when you might not have expected them to. A- anything from the the jazz pianist Keith Jarrett to um, <clears throat> Donald Trump. <laughs> we'll, get, we'll get to those in a minute. Uh, I want to I want to uh, bring up one of the key benefits of messiness or of disorder, which is that it introduces diversity into something that otherwise might be exceedingly routinized, but you don't realize it because it's your routine and it seems to work. Um, and it strikes me that it's also great for people like me who tend to have uh, – what you might call completist inclinations, where like if I start reading something by an author, pretty soon I think, well, now I have to read everything by that author. Um, and if there are books about that author, maybe I need to read those. So even starting that first book becomes this really intimidating project. But actually, it seems from what you're saying in the book, um, if I can extrapolate a little bit, that, well, maybe you don't need to read all 36 of Shakespeare's plays. If you read 10 of them, but then you read something else from another author, and then you read something that has nothing to do with literature at all, but might actually give you insight into what you're reading, even though it has to do with sports or music or something like that, that actually you can cultivate like your own personal set of um, preferences, your own personal set of uh, you know things you love to do, and that that might help you in your work or in your, you know, just conversationally or whatever, that it's okay. You don't have to feel guilty about not getting to everything. Yeah, gosh, I'm, now you mention it, I'm trying to remember the last book that I actually finished. I mean, if, if the book's really good, I'll, I'll usually get most of the way through Do it. Do you but... put away books mostly after having started them? Uh, yeah, my my house is just full of unfinished books and with the dog ears marking where I got to and pl- things to go back to and so on. Um, but but I mean, you mentioned the benefits of, of diversity and not necessarily finishing everything and, and, and casting a net widely. I think that's absolutely right. There's the well-known idea that if you have a team which is diverse, you have a lot of different perspectives, maybe different nationalities, different training, different ages, different genders, all of that. Um, Those teams tend to not necessarily be particularly stable. There's tension there, there's friction there, but they're better at solving problems. They've got so many more perspectives, so many different ways in which you can get unstuck. Um, So there's that, but there's also the idea that just um, a random shock to your own routine, even if it doesn't come from another person, uh, can help you solve a problem. Uh, and, and we could talk about computational algorithms and all of that, but there's a wonderful everyday example from London a couple of years ago. There was a tube strike. So basically the London Underground closed half its stations for 48 hours. And here in London, everybody who commutes has a little smart card that just records their travel not only on the underground, but on the um, the trains that run above ground, on the boats, on the buses... Everything gives you a nice data so, set. So to we work got a with. great, great data set, and so three um, economists looked at this data set, and they found thousands and thousands of people who had taken exactly the same route uh, every morning, and then the reverse route every night, uh, every day for two weeks, and then when the tube strike came, they changed 
their routine for 48 hours, of course, right? Because they couldn't go to their old underground station. They had to go somewhere else. They had to take a different route. But there were other routes available because there were other lines open or they could take the bus. Or So the economists looked at these people and they said, right, you, all these people did the same thing every day and then they changed. And then what happened at the end of the 48 hours? And the answer is 95% of them went back to the old routine, of course. But 5% of them stuck to the new system. And you would think if anybody has perfectly honed his or her routine to, to just the optimal time-saving, effort-saving approach, it's a commuter, right? Yeah. Surely commuters know exactly the best way to get to work. And yet what they discovered is, no, 5% of people discovered a better way, whether it was cheaper or more pleasant or uh, quicker. It's not clear. But for whatever reason, they actually preferred their alternative route that the tube strike had forced them into. And this is, this is a classic in, in all kinds of optimization problems. You knock something with a random shock, give it a little nudge sideways, and suddenly you realise you, you didn't like the nudge, but you're in a better place, which you never, you never tried, you never realised. Yeah, you, you said something a second ago that also made me start thinking about all the different teams I've been on professionally, I mean, throughout my life. And your point was that uh, loose ties are more useful than close friendships, right? In other words, you can be friendly with your colleagues, um, you can get along well, but ultimately you can't let um, you can't let the goal of the project be superseded by the goal of maintaining the friendship. Friendships don't make for good professional teams. Yeah. So it, actually, there's it's a bit more subtle than just that loose ties are good. So loose ties are good for for conveying information. Mm -hmm. So this is the this um, uh, classic uh, study by David Granovetter, um, American sociologist, where he basically said, you're looking for a job, where does the where do the tip offs come from a new job? They don't come from your friends, because your friends know exactly what you know. They come from more distant acquaintances. People who who live in a different place or work in a different industry, they hear the things you don't hear. So these loose ties, they're great for conveying information. Okay. But when we're actually saying, okay, we want to solve a, a problem, it's not just find a new job, but we need, to, um, we need to build some new thing, new project, new marketing campaign, new software. Then it's, it gets really tricky because then you want diversity of perspectives to help you, uh, you know, spot new ways of doing things and solve problems. But at the same time, you actually got to work hard together as well. So there's a real tension there between diversity and casting your net widely and yet and team cohesion. And there's a wonderful uh, detailed study of basically every computer game that's ever been made and rated, tens of thousands of computer games over the last 40 years, analysed by three mathematical sociologists. And they're able to track all of the people who worked on all of the computer games, over, over 100,000 people, mm -hmm. and figure out what the what the optimal kind of team was for making a great computer game based on what sort of projects they'd worked on before. And what they found was it wasn't loose ties and neither was it a tight-knit team. It was this weird amalgam. It was basically a set of different tight-knit teams, each of which had worked on different kinds of projects, who were now thrown together and had to work on some new project. And that's really tricky, right? Because you're in a tight-knit team and suddenly you're being told to work with another tight-knit team. You don't know these guys. You don't trust these guys. They think differently to you. They're the enemy. You've got your friends. And somehow you have to make it work. And yet those were the team dynamics that produced the most successful computer games in history. There, wasn't there also a point uh, in the book about how uh, teams that do better 
don't necessarily feel like they're doing better, right? That we don't always actually recognize the stuff that works, even though, in fact, it is working. Yeah, an amazing, uh, simple study by Catherine Phillips and, and a couple of other psychologists at Northwestern University, where they got teams of students to solve murder mystery problems. So it's a bit like you get to play like your Sarah Koenig on Serial, right? So you've got, you know, who who somebody's been murdered and here's the murder weapon and here are the witness statements and here's the evidence and here are the alibis. You've got everything and three possible people who did it. And you ask teams of four students to try and figure out who did it. And um, it turns out it's quite hard. And only about um, 50% of people get this right in a, in a team of, of four friends. But if you put people in a team of three friends and a stranger the success rate goes from 50 percent to 75 percent so 50 percent is not impressive in multiple choice of three 75 percent is impressive this is a big improvement um despite the fact the stranger didn't have any new information right this is just a different dynamic the stranger just had exactly the same pack of information that the friends did but there's a new dynamic people feel they have to conduct themselves in a different way, justify their thinking, be more explicit, be less lazy. They they solved the problem much better. But they hated the experience. Yeah. And they didn't think they'd actually succeeded. So you ask them, do you think you got the right guy? They're like, no, we don't think so. So I think that was a really powerful study where you have a diverse team, is more successful, feels less successful, and feels less comfortable. So people are systematically sorting themselves into tidier team environments in the mistaken belief that they're actually getting better at solving problems, but they're getting worse. Yeah, that's fascinating. Uh, Here's what I want to do now. Uh, Rather than going chronologically through some of the ideas in the book as they're presented, how about if I just start naming some of the characters and some of the other elements in the book, and then you tell us what we can learn from them? Sure. Building 20 at MIT. So this is the most beloved structure at MIT. Uh, it was built during the war. It was designed in an afternoon. It was really cheap. It was called the Plywood Palace. Um, dusty, uh, a fire trap, no air con, confusing mess. And they were supposed to knock it down at the end of the war, but they didn't because the GIs came home and suddenly they all enrolled in university. So you, suddenly you needed um, a place to put them. So Building 20 stayed up. And... It was the most amazing, uh, dynamic, creative hub. So it housed Rad Lab during the war, which basically won World War II with superior um, radar designs. Uh, the the famous uh, high-speed photography uh, images of bullets going through apples, they were shot in Building 20. The hackers of the MIT Model Railway Company, they started in Building 20. The first uh, graphic arcade game was designed in Building 20. Noam Chomsky... Uh, and Morris Hall uh, revolutionized linguistics in Building 20. The Bose Corporation started in Building 20. The first atomic clock was built in Building 20, where they, by the way, had to knock out um, two floors to create a three-story space. And this is part of what was going on, which was this was a totally hackable mess of a space. You could do anything you wanted. Nobody cared. And even the president of MIT during the 1970s had an office in Building 20 because he said, because nobody cares if you nail something to a door. And it was that freedom. It was partly that. And it was partly the diversity of the fact that all the low status projects got thrown into Building 20. So anybody with no power, no influence was put in what was basically a very large garden shed. Mm -hmm. And they all started working together. 
Um, so there was this, this incredibly messy space that lasted for um, over 50 years. Um, they eventually knocked it down, replaced it with some Frank Gehry building. But, um, <laughs> but it, was, it was almost intrinsic to the fact that it was cheap and ugly and messy, low status, nobody cared. That made it such a great creative space. Yeah, the nobody cared part of that was, uh, I think, the most intriguing to me because this really seemed like a kind of organic process, right? Uh, throw a bunch of people in there, nobody's paying attention, and then holy hell, look what they come up with. Yeah. And funnily enough, there's all this fashion for uh, Google offices with kind of slides and ping pong tables and sweet dispensers and all this fun stuff. And that, that's all fine, I'm sure. Um, but Google, when it was actually Google, when it was doing the things that, that created the modern company, when it was developing search, well, first it was a couple of guys in a university department, and then it was a garage, then it was a bigger garage, and and, and then it was a space where the engineers would just knock down the walls and then rebuild them. And actually, the, the definitive times for the company were actually in incredibly cheap, messy spaces. And I think that's, that's often the case. I, I really wonder if like a modern day architect were to go back and look at that building when it was first um, or maybe in its first 10 years of existence uh, when all this stuff was happening. And if he or she weren't aware of all the amazing collaborations going on, uh, if they would look at that building and think, God, this place is a complete wreck. You know, nobody can get any work done in this place. Look at how the, look at how the floors are designed. They're so flat. Uh, look at how uh, you know the pipe runs through the middle of the thing, and everybody's redirecting it to go wherever they want it to, so that they can put. A, they'd probably say, "How does anybody ever get any work done there?" Yeah, I think some some architects, I'm sure, are quite sensitive to these considerations. But I mean, actually, this idea came from Stuart Brand, the great. You know, the, the granddaddy of the internet, Stuart Brand, who is a, a mentor to uh, to Jeff Bezos at Amazon and all these people. And I interviewed Stuart for the book. It was amazing to meet him. But one of his big ideas was all buildings are designed by architects as forecasts. They are a forecast of how the building will be used. And of course, all forecasts are wrong. So the real advantage of any building is can it adapt? Can you Can you change it? Can it adapt to circumstances? And there are, of course, different ways in which a building can adapt. I mean, Westminster Abbey has adapted, the Houses of Parliament have adapted, Congress has adapted. But the easiest way to be adaptable is actually to be a wreck in the first place. And then your users can just tear down whatever wall they like and rewire anything they want to. Uh, and that's a very, very effective way to be a space in which people actually get things done. Jane Jacobs, uh, I think, appears in several of your books. I think you've been a fan of the author for a very long time. In this book, uh, you write about diversity within cities. Uh, and the message there, by the way, is one that goes against the grain a little bit of, I guess, Economics 101, optimization, uh, the idea that cities should specialize in something. Actually, those cities don't do as well as the ones that do everything, right? Yeah, there, I mean, there are two things going on. There's um, a diversity of industrial structure. Um, and there was this big debate in economics as to whether a city should specialise, um, whether you, if everybody in the city is making pins, they all get really, really good at making pins. There's something to be said for that. Or whether the pin makers learn from the bra makers who learn from the tyre manufacturers who will learn from the software engineers and so on. And Jane Jacobs said, no, what's the real creative stuff happens with fertilisation across different industries, not, not within industries. And the evidence seems to bear that out. 
So just a mess of a place like Birmingham, which never gets any uh, respect. Actually, Birmingham's been doing just fine for centuries and it will continue to do just fine whereas the specialized cities like the Detroits of the world do brilliantly but then they then they fade but there's something else going on which is at the neighborhood level a neighborhood that has and this is an idea that's actually started to catch on finally after over 50 years of Jane Jacobs and her acolytes pushing it a neighborhood that has uh, you know a school some residential some light industry some shops some cultural stuff just a whole mishmash of stuff that we would regard as kind of getting in each other's way or gosh well if people are driving to the shops then they might run over the kids who are going to school and if there's light industry well that is noisy and there's pollution and we don't want that near the houses and that doesn't seem like a good idea but in fact it works really well and one of the reasons it works really well is because the streets are always bustling they're always interesting any time of the day or night there's always somebody using them for some purpose, which just makes them safe and interesting places you might want to hang out. And that's what makes a city neighbourhood work. Because if you have a very specialised industrial quarter or a very specialised neighbourhood quarter, a residential quarter, on the map, it seems perfectly logical. It makes perfect sense. But if you go there at the wrong time of day, it's dead. And the, of course, the moment it's dead, it is at best you know, economically inactive, and at worst, it's, it's actually a dangerous place. People don't want to hang out there. Okay, uh, let's switch to music. Um, and you give a couple of examples here. One is uh, Brian Eno and Oblique Strategies, and the cards, the other is Miles Davis and Jazz Improvisation. Uh, what can we learn about the life-enhancing benefits of messiness from these two? Well, I was possibly even more excited about interviewing Brian Eno than I was about interviewing <laughs> Stuart Brand. Uh, they're both wonderful people. So uh, I talked to Eno about the use of randomness in creative processes. And Eno, of course, worked with David Bowie on the great Berlin albums and worked with U2 and has worked with Paul Simon and has worked with Twyla Tharp and just everybody. He's yeah. an amazing, amazing, and in his own right, is a great musician as well. Um, and, and what he says is, uh, if you disrupt people's rhythms they get to a new kind of place where they can deploy their skill in a way that isn't cliched so you get better and better and better at something but you're just repeating your own cliches unless there's some kind of interruption some kind of disruption and Eno regards that as, as partly his role that's why he gets hired um, the, the record company wants a band to produce exactly the same as their previous hit they can't help themselves the band maybe kind of want to do that as well. They're a bit scared. And Brian Eno doesn't care because he'll be on to another band in, in a month's time. So Brian Eno messes everything up. And of course, that doesn't always work. But you, you sometimes get the most amazing results because you're, you're just in a, you're in a new place. You might discover something new. You're also paying attention. He says it's, it's um, the enemy of creative work is boredom. And the friend of creative work is attention. And you pay attention if you're uncomfortable. There's something if, new. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody new, some place new, some new challenge. It's like being a tourist, the right kind of tourist in a new place. You notice everything. It's fascinating. And he, so he's trying to get bands to be tourists inside their own music and discover new things. Yeah. Another example also of where uh, doing something that works isn't always the most fun, right? Uh, you mentioned a second ago that it, it 
puts you in a place that's uncomfortable to have your routine messed up. And you noted that uh, Phil Collins at one point started throwing beer bottles or something at, yeah. at you know, because he just, just he was tired of having uh, his routine disrupted like that. He, he hated it. Yeah, Phil Collins was drumming on Another Green World, which, by the way, is the the album that Prince said was the the biggest influence on him. It was a great album. Um, Carlos Alomar, great jazz guitarist, also hated working with Brian Eno at the time because he said, look, this experiment sounds like crap. You know, I, I, I don't like it. It's stupid. And can, then, can you describe the, the working so, process, by the way? Because so, this is interesting. Yeah. So the fundamentally what's going on is that uh, Brian Eno has this box of cards called the Oblique Strategies. And the Oblique Strategies have odd instructions. For example, everybody change instruments. So you've got one of the greatest guitarists on the planet. You take his, his uh, Stratocaster away from him and you make him sit at the drums. That, that sort of thing. Um, or Brian Eno is, has written a bunch of random chords on a blackboard and is arbitrarily, and Brian's not actually a musician himself, he's arbitrarily pointing to the chords. And the musicians, of course, can, can play any of these chords. They're great musicians, but they, it's just this utterly random noise and they, and they really, really hate it. But, of course, what happens is uh, at a certain point, um, you hit on a chord sequence that really works and then suddenly that's on the Heroes album. Um, and Carlos later on, much later on, said, you know, those cards, they took me to a place that was totally new. And to be honest, I didn't like it. But when I came back, I was fresh. So they, so they did do something. And he now uses those cards with his own students. So 20, 30, 40 years later, finally, it's like, actually, that was a great idea. One of my uh, one of my sit on the couch and have a whiskey and shut my eyes albums is uh, Miles Davis's Kind of Blue. Um, I learned something about this in uh, in your book. Um, how did that come about, and what can we learn from the way Miles Davis approached jazz? Well, there's so much to say about Kind of Blue. One of the things was that it was almost all first takes which was not common. I know jazz is famous for its improvisation, but normally you'd, you'd have a lot of takes, you'd splice them together. Um, the, the discarded takes of Kind of Blue are things like um, the producer cuts in and says, oh, um, I, I can hear the snare drum uh, vibrating uh, in tune with the, with the double bass, and Miles goes, that goes with it, and they'd start again. So, or, or there'd be, you could hear a bit of paper rustling or something that... They never stopped because somebody hit a bum note. And uh, there's this particular moment, the, the, the first track on Kind of Blue, So What? Very famous intro, very unusual intro, uh, with um, the double bass leading the tune. And then Jimmy Cobb, the drummer, hits the drum, and it's just too hard. He swapped his brushes for sticks. He hits the drum, it's too hard. And just as he does it, Miles Davis launches into this solo, and Jimmy Cobb is convinced that Miles is about to stop the take. But actually, it's this electrifying moment. It seemed like a mistake at the time, but Miles was just determined to keep going. And they kept all those takes. Um, but the, the really amazing thing about Kind of Blue is that afterwards, Miles Davis said, I missed. That wasn't what I wanted. <laughs> that wasn't the sound I wanted. And everyone said, oh, you've got to be kidding. It's a great album. He's like, I'm not saying it's not a great album. I'm just saying it wasn't what I wanted. And it was that willingness to 
um, let go of control enough that you don't actually achieve the sound you're looking to achieve, and then to but just keep going, and then afterwards to go, well, it turns out it was a great album. David Bowie, by the way, apparently had the same thing. So Brian Eno said David had this incredible ability to, um, in the studio, when something was nearly perfect and it was going great and then there'd be an accident, David would just drop the perfect thing and say, well, we can come back to that. But what just happened, that mistake, is much more interesting. We've got to work on the mistake. And that, you were talking about your, your love of completing things. Sometimes we need to just be able to leave something unfinished because something interesting just happened that needs to be chased up. It seems like maybe there's a relationship also between accepting this kind of disorder and setting aside one's ego, right? That if, you, uh, if you're too caught up in what something in particular says about you, like with the completest thing, right? Well, I have to know everything about Shakespeare, which is like this silly thing to think anyways. Nobody knows everything about Shakespeare, right? Set aside your ego in pursuit of something better, in pursuit of something more personal, more individual to you. That seems to be what Miles Davis was doing. Yes, perhaps, although a lot of the people that I talk about in the book did, do have tremendous egos. <laughs> they just have a certain amount of, of comfort with with chaos. I mean, I, I talk about... Uh, the German Panzer commander Rommel, for example, that was a guy with a very big ego, but he was comfortable in situations that other people would have just felt were too chaotic. Yeah, let's let's talk about Rommel. The lesson from Rommel uh, seems to be that uh, when you're in a competition and you're in a pinch, do the thing that nobody expects. It's partly just the advantage of surprise, but it's also that um, you you need to be aware that you could do something that would be bad for you if it's worse for the other guy and it's it's a two-way fight then that's fine um and the the rommel uh, its it stories are uh, woven together with um discussion of jeff bezos at amazon and donald trump yes <laughs> and uh and a couple of other people in competitive situations like magnus carlson the world chess champion and what you see, there are obviously a lot of differences between these people, but what you see is uh, situations where they are willing to make moves that are hasty or hurried or chaotic, incoherent, that if you only looked at them, you would say, this doesn't make any sense. This, this looks like a disaster. It's only when you pull back and you see what those moves are doing to the other side, the confusion they're causing, the panic they're causing, you realise that maybe things are, things are going quite well. So the the... A classic example, Rommel's campaign in North Africa during the, the Second World War was fighting the British Army, and he decided to send his forces across the middle of a just a terrible desert in Libya, soft, soft sand. Um, he was running out of petrol. It was just chaos. Nobody knew where anybody was. In, Rommel nearly landed in the middle of the British Army by mistake. Um, the German high command were beside themselves they said I, Rommel has sent us no information we fear things are in a mess if you had just been with Rommel you would have said this is an absolute catastrophe but what Rommel realised was the British army was in a worse situation because they were trying to scramble around the coast on a narrow road which was blocked they were in full retreat uh, They didn't. their supplies were also in chaos and so there was a week of a completely shambolic manoeuvring at the end of which Rommel had 
complete victory. <laughs> <laughs> Which also reminded me a little bit of, of um, Bezos dealing with his various uh, corporate rivals, where he would, in the early days of Amazon, push his staff to do various things that were basically impossible. Like, let's we have a carving knives sliding down the chutes in Amazon warehouses, and the sorting machine is saying, is this carving knife a hardback or a paperback? I mean, just disastrous. Except that he realised he had to move that quickly because if he did, he would overtake his his rivals who were being very careful, very tidy-minded, didn't want to damage their brand. And so they were just moving too slowly. And yeah. in the end, he overtook them all. You sacrifice a certain amount of preparation for that kind of speed. Uh, and sometimes it's to your advantage. Um, yeah. Of you... course, in, in the end, Rommel lost. Yeah. Um... <laughs> Eventually, he ran out of luck. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there's also the story in there. I think it might have been the same chapter about the uh, the Phantom Major um, in the British Army. Uh, David Sterling. David Sterling, a saboteur who didn't do as much reconnaissance as other people wanted him to do because he thought that that would give away his advantage. He was just jumped in behind enemy lines and started causing trouble. <laughs> Yeah, it, it, it's an amazing. This is a real boy's own story. This is this is the the foundation of the SAS, right. which is our equivalent of the Navy SEALs. Um, and uh, yeah, Sterling, uh, it, it wasn't the first uh, person to think of the idea of special forces and sabotage and get in behind enemy lines. But what he emphasised was we need an incredibly small team, and the more time you spend on reconnaissance, the more risk there is of being discovered. If you just go in there somewhere where you know there's going to be some kind of target and then figure it out when you're there. You will be in chaos. You won't know exactly what's what's going to happen or what you're going to hit, but your enemy will be utterly unprepared. And other special forces units who were much more about, well, let's scope out all the territory. It's like Mission Impossible. We know where everything fits and all the moving parts. Actually, it works great in the movies or in the TV series, but actually in real life, what that does is alert the enemy that something's going on. They weren't nearly as successful as this absolute seat of the pants SAS commander yeah, that was fantastic uh, I got time for a couple more uh, Andy Haldane and rules of thumb okay uh, so I looked at this famous speech by Andy Haldane who is chief economist of the Bank of England given a few years ago to the convocation of central bankers at Jackson Hole and uh, the speech was called the dog and the frisbee and what Haldane looked at was can we predict, in in retrospect, can we predict which banks would have run into trouble during the crisis using our highly sophisticated uh, Basel capital requirements risk weightings? And the answer was no. Those risk weightings, which are supposed to indicate how much capital banks should have, capital, of course, is, is your safety cushion. Alpha Chat listeners will know this, but Banks with more capital are safer if they get hit by economic shocks. But capital gets risk-weighted depending on the kind of risks that banks are taking. If you're taking lots and lots of risks, you need more capital. If you're taking fewer risks, you need less capital. Uh, it's all very, very complex risk-weighting. And Andy Haldane said, well, I've looked at it, and none of that helps. You're better off adopting a really simple rule of thumb, which is just, just tell me how much capital there is. Don't tell me about the risk-weighting. Just tell me how much capital there is. That is a far better predictor of which banks end up getting into trouble. Um, now, of course, you, the story doesn't stop there. You can't just switch to that rule because that rule would be gamed. But I talk about the idea of different sorts of uh, quite simple rules of thumb and how quite simple rules of thumb in banking and in many other fields often outperform apparently sophisticated 
decision-making rules. Because it turns out the apparently sophisticated decision-making rules are overfitted or they're based on data that you don't actually have, whereas the rule of thumb is much more robust. Um, at the end of our interview, Andy Haldane said what he really wanted was, was he didn't want an army of regulators, he wanted a swap team. He just wanted to be able to go into a bank and start asking deep questions, surprising questions with no notice, uh, and I want answers within a couple of hours. Um, and if you do that to enough banks, then you really start to understand, do the banks really understand the risks they're running? Do they have a proper risk management system? But he said he, he felt that the regulatory environment was, was moving in the other direction. Yeah. M many more boxes, much more risk, uh, sort of um, box ticking. Right, because what you want is for the banks to act better. You want them to not be taking as much risky behavior. You don't want them just to pass a test. And if they know what the test is going to ask in advance, they're going to find a way to pass it without necessarily embracing the kind of behavior that you want them to embrace. We had this extraordinary parallel between uh, the Federal Reserve stress tests and VWs cheating on emissions, yeah. where effectively what banks were doing was purchasing insurance for specific events specified in the stress test. So you, you've got this very, very specific kind of product that basically makes you look good on the test. Um, it's not really making you any safer in any other scenario, very similar to what VW were doing, where they uh, designed their engines to run in a very fuel-efficient way during the test, or a low, not a fuel-efficient way, a very low-emission way during the test, um, and a high-emission mode when the test wasn't being conducted. The only difference is what VW did was illegal, but apparently what the banks were doing was, was perfectly legal. Uh, and finally, uh, you close your book with a wonderful chapter about kids, how we can teach kids to embrace messiness in their lives, that we don't always have to be ever so tenderly monitoring them, that actually you can put them in environments that look dangerous, but that when, they, uh, when they're left to their own devices, actually they act in such a way as to make it less dangerous for them. Yes. Uh, Hannah Rosine has been uh, writing about this for, for The Atlantic and writing about these chaotic playgrounds where kids just play with saws and hammers and nails and light fires and just cower in the darkness under sheets of corrugated metal and have very low injury rates. And when you look at a full review of the safety literature, which is, I have to say, is thin. So there's not that much to look at. But what little we know basically indicates that all kinds of apparently dangerous play, anything from sharp objects to heights to possible abduction from strangers, getting lost, all of this sort of stuff, doesn't actually seem to result in injuries to children. And that's presumably because children adjust their behaviour. If they know it's a risky situation, they will be more careful. But dealing with those risky situations, more naturalistic situations, is a much better preparation for life and much more fun. The, the observation that an informal game of football or soccer is much better than a, an organised sports match. Because in an organised sports match, basically, the winners can crush the losers and the adults force the losers to keep going and they have a miserable time. Whereas in an informal kickabout, you just got a, a couple of shirts on the floor, they serve as goalposts and... The teams keep swapping around. Um, actually, you have to negotiate in a much more sophisticated way. You have to make sure everyone, everybody in the game is happy because otherwise they leave. So you have to keep everyone, everyone happy. You have to balance the sides. You're kind of all playing the game together. The sides aren't fixed. They tend to be fluid. Um, 
not such a great game of soccer, but possibly a much better preparation for life. And of course, a complete mess. Tim Harford has been our guest. The book is Messy, The Power of Disorder to Transform Our Lives. Warmly recommended. Thanks for being on the show, Tim. Thank you. And that's all for today's show. Please rate and review us on iTunes. It really does help other people find our show. You can also call us at 917-551-5012. That's country code plus one in the U.S. for those of our overseas listeners. Or you can email us at alphachatterbox at ft.com. Finally, I'm on Twitter at Cardiff Garcia if you want to hit me up there directly. Thanks, as always, to the amazing Amy Keene, our producer and editor. And thanks to our listeners. We'll see you here again soon for another episode of Alpha Chatterbox. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.